This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Thank you, Tyler. Uh, thank you also the rest of the team at the Carsey Wolf Center. It includes Patrice and Emily. And of course, thank you to Lisa and Windance. Before we begin, I just want to say a few words about Film Quarterly. We are the oldest running film studies journal in the country. Um, We are published by UC Press in both print and online form, and we're partially funded by the Ford Foundation's Just Films Initiative, which allows us to collaborate on and host live events and be a part of things like this. Um, I'm the assistant editor, as uh, Tyler said, and um, we have B. Ruby Rich, the legendary queer and feminist film critic at the helm as the editor-in-chief. Ruby has um, brought, really brought a unique editorial vision to the journal during her tenure there over the past 10 years. Um, for example, we have not stayed true to our namesake. We publish on an array of media from around the world, new and old, um, which includes film, TV, video games, virtual reality, web-based media, which includes documentary and fiction forms, um, and even sometimes installation art. Um, As long as it's about the moving image and has a social and political engagement, we are interested in it. Um, Lastly, we pride ourselves on casting a wide net in terms of readership. We aim to bridge academic and public intellectual communities um, who just love rigorous intersectional analyses of visual culture. Which brings us to your article, um, which is the basis for this event, of course, Um, Your piece called Millennial Messiahs is in our current issue, which, as Tyler says, available in print form in the lobby. Um, And when Windance and Lisa pitched this idea to us, we were so enthusiastic to have writing on these shows and on the tech industry. So thank you for your wonderful piece and also agreeing to do this in-person event to unpack and elaborate on your research. So let's begin there. What led to this collaboration? Well, I think we saw it since I was, I had just finished writing a book uh, based on interviews with women and men in Silicon Valley. And Lisa and I both are big consumers of tech TV. And I thought it would be a great opportunity for us to kind of integrate the sociological research and bring that into dialogue with television and obviously a lot of the the tech CEOs are our celebrities they're they're part of the celebrity culture and so we both have a lot of respect from each other and we thought it would be a really nice collaboration yeah we worked at the same university for over almost two decades and um and had a chance to collaborate in a Mellon Sawyer seminar focused on race and immigration in California. Windance invited me to be part of that, and I learned a lot um, through that year-long seminar. And in the seminar, we also read Windance's book with graduate students from, I think, seven different departments. And it opened up a lot of dialogue and conversation. And then after we had read the book, these two shows uh, that we had become aware of Super Pumped and We Crashed seemed to resonate with a lot of the sociological findings in Windance's book. And so we thought, well, let's keep our kind of mutual learning process going. And now that we've read your book, let's think about it in, in relation to these two TV series that are trying to tell these 
stories of fallen tech bros. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. kind of how we got into it. And, and then um, we co-wrote together, and, and that, now it's in the, the piece. So what, it's been great to learn from Windance. And what a great experience to be able to watch a show with that kind of research and writing in the background of your mind as you're watching it and, and analyzing it and thinking critically about it. Um, what, a, what an awesome experience to have. Um, so we thought we would begin, because we don't want to assume that everyone has seen these shows, um, so we thought we'd begin with just showing the trailers for both shows, um, just to give people a taste um, of these of the shows that they discuss in their article, We Crashed and Super Pumped. So let's lay out the historical <laughs> scene here before we get into the, the actual shows. Um, so I want to ask Windance, because of the research that you did, the field research you did for your, mm-hmm. your book, Geek Girls. Can you talk about when these shows take place, which is the 2010s, um, and, and kind of when these startups emerge, um, when, when much of this, also the show's actions take place, how, did, how does this moment um, fit within the larger kind of um, trajectory of, of what we've come to understand as big tech? Um, so I, I, I would say that it starts with um, what has been called the PayPal Mafia, so the guys who founded PayPal, and then they sold it, and there was a lot of money made. Um, and Emily Chang writes about this. Um, she works for Bloomberg, but she writes about this in her book. I think what happened is we, there was a concentration of wealth in the Valley, and you had a small number of men who were able to finance startups so the PayPal mafia, they, they financed Facebook. So we have Facebook founded in 2004, followed by WeWork and Airbnb in 2008, then Uber 2009, and then Lyft to, to 2012. So there's a lot of money. It's, a, it's a, basically a fiscal climate in which we have what sociologists would call pattern recognition. So young men, particularly if you've dropped out of Harvard or Stanford or MIT, were able to attract the financing, the venture capital. And the issue is that women weren't able to get that kind of venture capital. And so even men who had a lot of failed, you know, serial entrepreneurs like Adam Newman, they were still able to get the money because this image of the entrepreneur got, it was gendered as masculine, as white, or Asian male, but you had to drop out of the right school. So, you know, if you were black or Latinx and you dropped out of an HBCU, you were just a dropout. But if you dro- and so a pattern developed after Zuckerberg and others in which people who dropped out and became entrepreneurs could get this money, right? And, and it was a very small group. So I think it was a historical moment that's now over where the money was flowing and Stanford, Stanford and MIT played a key role because you had a network. So I talk about the, the concept of geek capital in the book, which is you have the right networks, right? So you can get people to finance mm-hmm. you. And it mm-hmm. just grew and grew and grew. Mm-hmm. So I think that's... But this happened after Zuckerberg, after Facebook. So you had a period of eight or so years where they're being financed. And so we get this image of this is what someone who does a startup looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would just add that um, this is a moment um, in the tech industry where we're shifting from an era of Web 2.0 or social media 
to a moment that some scholars have called platformization, where suddenly you have digital companies um, leveraging existing industries, such as the transportation industry or the real estate industry, and both Uber and WeWork are creating digital um, services and platforms that kind of connect to and extract the value out of these other industries. And so I think that that's an important moment in, in 2010, the shift toward the platformization of the Internet and the creation of all kinds of digital services. By 2019, you have so many companies participating in those um, kinds of activities that we have a so-called unicorn stampede where there are, you know, a number of companies, uh, including WeWork and Uber, Uber, Pinterest, Slack, um, a host of others, that were each valued at more than a billion dollars when they were preparing for their initial public offerings. Um, and so you suddenly have all of these companies with fairly new services that had evolved over the decade um, that are, 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 some people are saying their value is heavily inflated um, mm -hmm. to the point that some bold congressional leaders are testifying at hearings and warning public investors about um, losing their money in, the, in these ventures. Yeah. So just building on what Windance was pointing out about that earlier period and how it led up to 2019. Which, yeah. yeah, I think that's so helpful and so necessary for us to understand before we um, get into the show. So let's talk about the shows themselves. And I recommended um, that we look at, uh, we do some more clips and look at the opening credit sequences, um, in part because, I mean, first of all, opening sequences, of course, are the first impressions that viewers have of shows. I think that they're largely taken for granted, by the way. Um, but also importantly, they repeat right before each episode. So there's this kind of like further embedding or, or implanting of the kind of ideas or what they're trying to get, uh, to convey to the viewer. Um, even if you can skip over them, you're still seeing a little bit of it these days with streaming. Um, so let's take a, a look at those um, opening credits. And we're also going to watch just a little bit of the first episode, the, the beginning of the first episode of We Crashed, um, and, and talk a little bit more about, about unicorns. Okay. <laughs> so much in there, just in those opening sequences and then the opening of We Crashed. I don't know where we want to begin, but maybe you guys could think a little bit out loud together about what we're watching here, how it's setting the scene for the episodes to follow. Well, what struck us and one of the things that we wrote about and theorized in our article was the, the, all the female silent service providers of different ethnic backgrounds who, and, and that yeah. scene really sets up this, you see his power reflected and expressed through all the people serving him, you mm -hmm. know, and waiting mm -hmm. on him. And they don't have a name and they don't speak. So we, that's, that just clearly communicates his status and power immediately. But th there's kind of a group of people interested in writing for television about these major um, economic entities and coming up with, you know, creating a cultural forum in which viewers can think about the corrupt workplaces, the corrupt financial um, incentives of these companies and allow viewers to think about this largely unregulated industry. So we have Super Pumped and the We Crash for Apple TV. Um, and I just want to mention that we are on a writer's strike right now, too. And I just want to mention the names of some of the writers that have worked on these shows. Yes. 
Sarah Acosta, Emily Hornsby, Safi Deary wrote for Super Pumped, and then We Crashed is Eleanor Burgess, Ava Anderson, Zenzel Price, Elisa Karasik. Um, these are people who are probably on picket lines right now who wrote this material and maybe finding a hard time finding work um, at this moment. And I just think it's important to acknowledge them and some of the creative um, uh, talent on, on these shows. Um, but we, we start with these also just to give you a sense of how viewers are invited into these diegetic or narrative universes. Um, the, the kind of, even the, the sound is quite similar across these opening sequences. It sounds like almost these bubbly little worlds. It reminds me of like champagne bubbles popping or something. And there's an interesting acoustic continuity across the sequences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We showed the opening sequence of um, We Crashed because of um, just looking at the domestic life world of the CEO and how his day, as Wendance mentioned, is started by an entourage of domestic um, workers who open the blinds, bring him his breakfast, light up his bong, um, get him ready to go off and tackle the, 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 the kind of tech world. And he doesn't know this, but he's walking into his own, um, you know, he's been voted off the board. He's been voted out as CEO. Um, So it sort of starts there, and then the show does exposition of all the backstory leading up to that moment. I think it's also important to note that um, this was also based on the writings of Mike Isaac. Uh, I mm-hmm. was a Wall Street Journal reporter. Mm-hmm. So journalists also played a key role in documenting the rise and fall in real time. And I think it was the article by Mike Isaac that was really, it was really central in his being fired. And of course, it was adapted by the writers. But there were a lot of writers involved in this, and including journalists. Yeah, it was adapted from a lot of memoirs, investigative reports, um, in the case of, uh, you know, We Crash, it was adapted from a podcast called We Crash, The Rise mm-hmm. and Fall of WeWork. Um, and, and then, it be, you know, it was adapted for streamed television. So I think it's interesting to mention that kind of um, industrial yeah. context. And yeah. And, and, yeah, and I would say, you know, it's, the, the, the podcast was really important. I mean, it was really central. And I would say in the case of Super Pumped, um, Susan Fowler's book, um, Whistleblower, her memoir, which is based, which she wrote after her blog. So we also have blogs. I mean, my research, I drew on blogs and memoirs as well as interviews. But we have a lot of people to thank who were blogging and creating diaries that also provided the inspiration for these shows. Yeah, I know we briefly talked about, um, besides all the labor that, of course, is behind the, these kind of um, how these stories emerge, um, we also talked about just how the, all the products that are created out of kind of true crime these days, right? And, and now it's true con, right? Which is, are these stories about conning, which, um, you know, these kind of have a relation to. Um, and I, was, I read an article recently that um, true crime was actually referred to as a lifestyle, 
which is really, I mean, when was the last time if ever you heard of a genre being referred to as a lifestyle? Like, because there's products in Etsy and they're, you know, like about, uh, and there's just so much fan culture around true crime. It's really bizarre. But maybe we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, I want to I wanna stay also um, with kind of what, how these, what these shows are depicting. Um, something else that also struck me in watching that was just um, the insulated kind of existence of, um, of these, these CEOs and these entrepreneurs um, and and just the ways that you know, like blasting of Katy Perry's roar, you know, so that he can't hear anything, that everything's drowned out, right? And 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 the the, the that they have to put it on when he walks into the office. Um, so there's so there's really kind of yeah, this this amazing, and of course it's the moment when he is about to get fired, right, or be told to step down. Um, that 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 we are introduced to this the roar, and then he's. Um, He's, yeah, then he has to, he has to, he has to leave. Um, so let's talk about then the, him walking through the office and, and the kind of like tech culture, the culture of the office that he's walking into. So coming back to your, to your book, when Nance, um, perhaps you can talk a little bit about, um, yeah, about, about the kind of the, the, what we see in this, what you call brotopia, mm-hmm. um, right, that, that is in the tech, of the tech industry, um, and, and, uh, and, and, and talk about how the shows are, are trying to kind of um, intervene or, or represent that. So, um, Brotopia is the title of a book by Emily Chang. You oh. know, one of the things that I found, and I think it is accurately represented in this, is, and we'll see this in some other clips, the amount, uh, the excess. You didn't see it all in that clip, but the amount of drinking and partying and mandatory socializing. Um, it's a hermetically sealed world. And I think the difference between this business culture and, say, the late 20th century, mm-hmm. earlier cultures, workplace cultures, is that there's no real separation between work and home. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have a separate private life from work. And so that actually empowers the CEO more because you have a pop- you, the workers are generally below the age of 30, the majority. Most don't have children. And so this becomes their whole world, I think, which enhances the hermetically sealed and the power of the CEO because mm-hmm. they're providing everything. We don't see that in that, that clip. But what, what I found and what the research, other research has shown is there's also a lot of fear of not pleasing the CEO because everyone has to sign non-disclosure agreements. So we don't see that, but the background to this culture Mm -hmm. is the fact that even when you're interviewing before you've actually gotten a job offer, you're signing a non-disclosure agreement, which is basically signing away your freedom of speech in exchange for a job. And that, that makes it difficult for the employees when they leave or are driven out or, or basically traumatized, they can't even talk about it. Mm. But that also produces this culture of conformity because you've signed away your rights. And that's another part of the not being regulated by the government, you know, not having regulations. And, and also they're not unionized. So part of that, we're all happy in the party culture. What underlies that in part is the non-disclosure agreements and, and the fear and, and the ultimate power, yeah. and that's part of the mess- messianic culture. 
And we have some clips that we can show. Unless, Lisa, you want to chime in right now, we could show the clips and... Would yeah, like to I, I would just say that, yeah. you know, one of the, the concepts that we try to develop in the article mm. is this concept of the millennial messiah as a kind of archetypal figure during this period of maybe like 2010 to, to 2019, roughly, um, that exemplifies a shift in the kind of celebrity culture of the CEO figure within the tech industry. Prior to that, there had been people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, Larry Page. These people, too, certainly had celebrity personas within the media culture. But what we see is a kind of insertion of cash flow to the point where the figure shifts because they're sitting on so much money. And we start to see a kind of hedonistic tech bro culture where they've got so much money that they're partying like crazy. They are um, refusing to abide by any local or federal regulations and taking deep pride and satisfaction in that idea and um, getting away with it, essentially. Um, Their staffs that they're surrounded by, whether they're legal counsel or advisors, are just letting them do whatever they want as long as they allow the valuation of their um, enterprise to um, continue to evolve and, and intensify. And so we're, we're kinda, we try to study um, the power dynamics of this figure as well as situate the figure in relation to, the so, as Wendant's already mentioned, the silent service providers who are kind of in the background in many scenes throughout these shows. They have no voice. They tend to be racialized and mm-hmm. classed in particular ways. Um, and yet their labor day in and day out really helps to elevate and build this kind of hedonistic culture for these millennial messiah figures. Yeah, yeah and I think it's important to note, and we write about this at the end of the article, it's important to note that the corporate boards are, are aware of this hedonism. They know this is going on. They continue to get financing from banks. And so there are a lot of actors. There's a, I mean, it's not as if this isn't known that Adam Newman pr- drinks that certain tequila. I'm forgetting the brand. John Julio, 1942. That's right, because right, I don't drink tequila. But, but it's important to know that this isn't a secret. The bankers all know. And every time they go to ask for more money, they're given this money. So this is being supported by, you know, the, everybody knows what's going on. And it really does come down to the overvaluation and the unicorn status. So there are a lot of actors supporting this. And it's also, I mean, they, they're making more money than a lot of small countries. I mean, they have a lot of power. But there's a lot of collusion. And we can talk about this later, but yeah. when we think about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and, and then um, Bank of the Republic, part of that is... We're now seeing the government acknowledge that there wasn't federal oversight. And, and, and this is part of the same ecosystem. Yeah. So the hedonism is sort of like, okay, it's okay that you're engaged in this excessive behavior because a lot of people are making money. And we should say we're not opposed to hedonism. <laughs> yeah, we're not anti-hedonism. Um, but the way that it gets woven into the corporate culture is a little troubling. And you'll see a few clips yeah. um, coming up right. that maybe signal yeah. 
what some of our concerns might be. Yeah, we're all all about pleasure, but some of it's compulsory. (laughs) That's also the problem. Some of it is like you can't opt out of the drinking. And so if you're in a situation where you can't handle drinking, or in my case, I'm from a family of a lot of alcoholics and I just can't drink a lot, that's, that's just part of the culture. You have to participate in it. So it's, it's really, that's one of the problems. It's not voluntary. So why don't we watch some of those scenes of hedonism? Uh, um, you know, one shot that I, I was wondering if we, we would be including it or if it would be in those clips, um, you guys may, may remember, um, is, is this really incredible shot close up of, of a tap that's just sitting open. Do you remember this? I think it's like after the morning after a party, right. one of the office right. parties. I don't know if it's beer or kombucha or what it is, but it's just sitting open and the, the liquid's just pouring out. And I think it's such a, to talk about excess and waste, it's such an appointed, um, emulatizes the kind of like the pointedly, the, the, this, this visual metaphor of, of, of waste and, and the company's excess that we see also here. So, in terms of the scenes that we just watched, and in terms of how these shows frame questions of excess, waste, abuse, the things that we've just seen, do these shows go far enough? Do you, how do you guys feel about, what, what are your thoughts on how they're framing, whether it's hedonism or the kind of issues that you've already laid out, questions of race, class, gender, etc. Talk about the mixed bag that maybe some of the shows that you talk about in the article. Well, I, first I would say that these scenes don't show um, the pressure on the employees to mm-hmm. participate and how when, like one of the things I found in my research when I interviewed women was if they refused to participate in this, they often lost their jobs and there was a lot of job hopping. So the average, the, among the sample I had of about 98 people, they stayed on their job an average of two years. And a lot of the women talked about how they could not decline to participate or they wouldn't get their promotions or they would be they would get negative peer reviews because there's a lot of peer reviews. So I don't think it adequately depicts the amount of coercion that's involved and how participating in this culture um, is essential for getting promoted or having respect. Mm -hmm. And it also doesn't show the amount of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the shows are, of course, they're they're definitely not perfect in terms of the way they represent the, these uh, these tech world universes, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, but they do provide a space in which uh, the viewer can think about mm-hmm. gender discrimination. Mm-hmm the politics of sexual assault, labor exploitation within these workforces, and they do make some of these experiences vivid and palpable. What ends up happening, though, over time is that the narratives um, really suppress a lot of the potential for those issues to become bigger and more um, those issues to become disruptive Mm -hmm. and indicting of these operations. But they get contained and the, the, the shows really promulgate this logic of internal regulation by the corporation. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. And, and the way that that it manifests as well is through this figure that we call in the article the female fixer. Mm-hmm. And these often are executive white women 
who are appointed to clean up all the dirty work and make sure that the CEO prevails, whether in the corporate boardroom or in the court of law. Um, and, and so that figure is really kind of the, the, you know, the internal fixer where they can constantly say, we don't need to have um, you know, federal regulators come and do a site visit because we're working on this. And an example is at Uber, they brought in Eric Holder, who was in the Justice Department under the Obama administration, and then went on to work in a private firm. And Uber contracted him to lead an internal legal investigation of a host of sexual assault and sexual harassment claims within the company and generate a report that allowed them to just sort of contain it and encourage training for their um, personnel. Um, in any case, I don't know if this is answering exactly what you're well, getting at. No, but. No. Well, and the timing of that is they wanted to contain it before the IPO, right? So they were concerned about it, and then they ended up replacing him. Mm-hmm. But I also think we, what we see is um, a lack of female solidarity, yes. mm-hmm. um, because in that one scene, mm-hmm. you see yeah. Susan Fowler is going to Austin asking for help, and she's thinking about how much she's going to make during the IPO because she's one of the women who's been there the longest. So you also see how capitalism plays out or how the potential to become wealthy really undermines solidarity in the workplace. Yeah, I mean... I think we're going to show some clips in a minute up, um, that, that, that deal with the, those issues of, of sexual harassment um, and, and gender inequality in the workplace. But I want to just stay for a moment on this, this issue of, um, of the show's kind of tight focus, especially on the, the CEO character and its inabilities. Or, or maybe at times there is a kind of like fanning out and looking at other, like Susan Fowler and these other mm-hmm. characters, um, but but at times the limitations um, of again it's kind of the narrative structure and, and the kind of character development there. Super Pumped is a really interesting example of this um, with the, in terms of the, the drivers right and how their kind of narratives play out. And there's one driver in particular that you guys talk about in your article. Do you do you want to at all tell the audience or, or speak to the attempt to kind of dramatize that driver or the drivers um, the Uber drivers experiences? Well, I think we write about... So one of the things that we noticed is often you don't... There aren't a lot of, rep, there aren't a lot of representations of... The, the workers don't speak a lot. Right. But this was an example of a driver who was an immigrant. I think he may have been Egyptian. Mm-hmm. But this was rare. This was mm-hmm. one of the few moments where we see the driver's perspective... And we see like he's not able to earn enough mm-hmm. driving the Uber, and it like you see the worker vulnerability. I think that was a rare scene, and that sort of supports yeah. our analysis that it does contain it, it does contain um, critique, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also there's just this general fetishizing and glamorizing the CEO, right? And we don't. So that was an example that makes the case that we rarely that was the only driver that ever gets a voice yeah and and is also representing the exploited immigrant laborer and that was an exception i think i think that was the only there was only one Mm -hmm. scene like that Mm -hmm. yeah and um yeah i I mean i was gonna say something else about um the 
worker, but I don't well, know. Well, yeah, I mean, ahead. there's a scene in which the Egyptian American driver, you know, he, there's been a policy change at Uber that leads to additional costs that the drivers have to incur. And it turns out that he happens to be giving Travis Kalanick, the CEO, a ride that night. Mm-hmm. And so the driver takes the occasion to confront Kalanick and say, hey, could you rethink the policy that you've implemented recently? Um, it's really hurting us. I, I can't afford my car payments. Um, right. And, right. and they have a kind of fight, like a verbal fight in the car and it becomes really, it's staged in an interesting way because you've got this constrained environment and radically different power dynamics between them and they end up having a, a blowout and he's recording it and this mm-hmm. actually happened. This is so on, he you had can find a video, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. Egyptian driver had a, a yeah. video of this encounter and ends up releasing it online after talking to his his partner at home about it, and 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 it goes viral, yeah. and it exposes and gives further public awareness to the the um, the lack of ethics among the CEO of Uber and the like really outrageous behavior that he mm. engages in, especially in relation to his workforce. Mm-hmm. It just put it in bold relief and crystallized yeah. it. Um, so that yeah. scene was pretty important, but the, the voice of the, the yeah. workers is very limited. It's faint. It, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I think it is, a, it is a, it is a really effective and, um, poignant moment of, um, checking the privilege that we've been kind of been watching. And, and in some ways I think that's the double bind of these scenes, right? Is that like, mm-hmm. that looks like fun and that is, and that is glamorized the partying and the, and the kind of living excessively. But of course, we need to see those scenes of who, who gets who pays the price, not just the, the investors and the board members, but also the employees and those kind of quasi employees like Uber, right? Um, the Uber drivers. So maybe what we should do at this moment is take a look at those scenes um, that deal specifically with um, discri- gender discrimination, um, and then we can come back and talk in a little more detail about um, those dynamics. So talk a little bit about what we're seeing there, and, and we're seeing pretty. Um, I don't know, not, um, not necessarily elaborate, but definitely certain formal devices being used, um, editing, whether it's editing or the music or the graphics with the counters. Talk about how you guys see these shows attempting to tackle this issue of um, sexual harassment, gender inequality, et cetera, at, in, in these tech workplaces. Well, I think, so the scene with Susan Fowler where you have the graphics and the numbers mm-hmm, behind her, mm-hmm. that was a really powerful scene because it's one of the only scenes where we hear the women, where she's speaking directly to the camera and we hear her, she's representing all the women who've been pushed out. And that, that's very powerful because we haven't seen that before. This scene occurs also after she's reported her experiences um, to management and nothing Happen. So I think that was an example of, of them including the voices of the women. And as we know, Su- Susan Fowler's blog was what led to Travis Kalanick being taken, you know, fired basically. And that's what led to an investigation. But once again, that, that was an exception, right, in the show. It's, it's, it stands out because it's one of the only moments. Mm-hmm that we see the issue directly of the, the toxic atmosphere for the women. Mm-hmm. 
And, and it's also interesting because once I said earlier in my research, the, most of these women went and worked for other startups, like they found other jobs. And so it is interesting. There are so many startups that people were able to move, but once again, they don't talk about their experiences, right? They go to the next job yeah. and they can't say anything because of the NDAs. And so this is a revolving door of women coming in, they stay for a year or so, they either leave or they stay long enough thinking they can cash out, right? Because everyone's waiting for the IPO and they're thinking, oh, if I can just make it through another couple of months or another year, I'll be able to cash out. And it, of course, perpetuates that silence surrounding it, these experiences, these um, toxic Exactly. And I think what was also powerful, and um, Lisa and I wrote about this, was the silence, how you don't hear them speak in that scene where Ariana Huffington is, is interviewing them, but then it pulls out and you don't actually hear them. And I think that represents how they're silenced mm-hmm. through the NDAs in part, right? Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't go anywhere. Did you want to say something else? Yeah, about no, that? I think building on what you already said, Wendelson, um, just the, the contrast within this one series of Super Pumped between the direct address that we see from Susan Fowler as a whistleblower. Um, we call her a, she's a type of female fixer in our analysis, but we call her the renegade that like blows things up um, mm-hmm. and, and disrupts um, practices that are, she tries to disrupt practices that are oppressive. Um, but yeah, when Ariana is brought in to fix things as an executive fixer, She's in a glass case, and Mm. so it's this kind of mythology of transparency Mm. within the tech Mm. workplace, as if there's Mm. an open flow of information, and you can see what's going Mm. in all the offices. And the irony is that, you know, it wasn't until um, things got really bad where she actually, after the Holder investigation, where she had people come in her office and, and share any incidents of um, sexual harassment, inappropriate behavior, even sexual assault. The woman, the, the blonde woman that you see that doesn't go in had been sexually assaulted as a senior member in the company but decides not to report it. Um, because she, I think she was also, in real life, one of the first female employees. So she's also looking at cashing out, right? Yeah. So I think it's important to think about how um, you know popular television is dramatizing these kinds of scenes and workplaces, mm-hmm. and in, it's shaping ways that people might be thinking about these situations. Um, what does reporting look like in the workplace? Um, what are the repercussions and consequences for those that do report or that don't? Um, how does the workplace respond um, when it enacts and yeah. stages these kinds of situations? Uh, the shows certainly provide a kind of terrain to think through these power dynamics and to stage them in certain ways. But as we argue in our piece, it ultimately does so in a way that that quells most of the voices and suppresses most of the voices and, and experiences of people at, at the you know at the cost of you know what it would do for the PR of the company. Um, but. There are a lot of really important whistleblowers that have called out um, wrongdoing in tech workplaces Mm -hmm. like um, Timnit Jabru and Rebecca Rivers, who worked on the Google AI and ethics team and um, were fired (laughs) for writing a report uh, that called out some of the power dynamics of um, Google's 
AI projects. Of course, Susan Fowler, Francis Haugen at Meta, you know, had exposed personal data collection at, at Meta. Um, there's a whole bunch of them. And I think these figures are really important. Um, yeah. they, they seem to be some of the only options. <laughs> Uh, other, maybe AOC, although she's not running again for re-election, I think. Um, so. But I, I think it's also important to point out that Facebook changed their name to Meta after this stuff started coming out, after the whistleblower stuff. Then they rebranded, mm-hmm. right? So the rebranding to Meta occurred yeah. after a series of whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. See, I keep waiting for that anthology series, Whistleblowers. <laughs> when are we going to get that? That are actually the stories of whistleblowers. It seems like someone's, right. someone's sitting on that. I'm sure there's all kinds of issues with, with disclosing certain things about certain stories that, um, that yeah, but, there has but to nonetheless. Be a, there has to be a psychiatrist <clears throat> in that series. <laughs> um, maybe in a few minutes we'll, we'll, we'll open it up to the, to the audience. Um, maybe we also want to just dive a little deeper into the question of race here because we've been talking a lot about gender and, um, and obviously we've been thinking about things interte- intersectionally too with specifically the, um, the, the Muslim Uber, Uber driver. Um, but, you know, when Nance, especially in your book, you talk so much about the racial dynamics in Silicon Valley. How did you see it playing out in these shows? I'm thinking specifically about one type that you guys talk about in your article that we haven't talked about today, which is these kind of black male internal regulators. Um, and also, um, I can't remember the character's name, but the, the woman who, um, whom Adam brings on and we crashed, um, the black woman who, who he brings on and who ends up quitting. Right. right? So, so those are just two examples of... Um, of you know, kind of um, how the shows represent race, but but maybe you guys can talk a little bit about that as other other instances as well. Well, I'll just start by saying, um, in my research, I found that um, actually a number of the black men I interviewed left the tech industry before the book came out, but the black people who I met in Silicon Valley, first of all, a lot of them were uh, not from the U.S. Um, typically, you know, well-educated British accents, mm. but they typically worked as diversity reps, right? They were like constant. They were concentrated in HR and diversity reps, and they were actually used as the spokesperson to spin the demographics. So when the annual reports would come out, and the statistics would be really horrible, like six percent black and Latinx combined, they would bring out. Uh, I think her name is Maxine Williams. They would like Facebook would bring out the black former actress with the British accent mm. to explain why they were doing so well despite these numbers. <laughs> so they were sort of, I mean, that's what I saw at that time. They were brought in as well as LGBTQ um, employees would be brought in to do the spinning and to talk about even though these figures look horrible, we're really doing well. Even though we hired you know, seven people out of 2,500 people globally. And so that's what I saw in the Valley. In this show, as we write about, the black men are brought in to kind of form, like to form a disciplinary role, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it is somewhat limited. I mean, it takes a while. There are a few scenes we didn't show here. But they're still contained, too, because they're not really total insiders, although they are board members. But I think what the Mm -hmm. black men in the show exemplify 
is the white male solidarity mm. on the corporate board, right? And then you bring in the outsider, and it doesn't disrupt the brotherhood, so to speak. What would you say? I, I, I think that, yeah, the, the way that the figure, you know, the, the black male characters play these roles on boards as moral authorities, um, where they're the ones that are questioning the, the morality or the, the viability of the CEO's agendas. And, but they um, lose usually in yeah. the votes, right, initially. Well, but they crack it open. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are calling things out and mm-hmm. cracking things open. There, there is a way in which the white uh, male board members tend to kind of form a block and want to keep the person in power because it could jeopardize the whole operation and it's, it's accumulating value. So everything is about trying to keep the continuity of this figure in place mm-hmm. that is so disruptive and so outrageous and so excessive because he's accumulated value around him and created this ethos. But it's like a, you know, but, a, a stack, yeah. a house of cards house because cards. it's yeah. also the right. more crazy things get, the more the whole thing could implode. Yeah. But this, the, see, the clips we didn't show is when you have Jamie Dimon in the room, J.P. Morgan Chase, and he's still writing checks. Mm-hmm. You know, until the very end, he's yeah. still writing checks. He's still because they're still looking at how much money they can make. And I think it's really interesting to think about J.P. Morgan Chase and Jamie Dimon coming in to quote rescue Silicon Valley Bank when J- Jamie Dimon, you know, actually it was a big player in the both of these companies, and mm-hmm. and they're getting the money to keep going. So it's yeah. So the bankers are in the room, too, with the corporate board. Just to mention a little bit more about the racial dynamics, not necessarily these shows, but um, there was a report. It's a little dated now, but it's called Diversity in High Tech, and it was done by the U.S. Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. And a couple just quotes from this, like, among executives in the tech sector, 57% of employees were white, 36% 36% were Asian American and 1.6% were Hispanic, and less than 1% were African American. Um, and then they also had a. Staggering. Yeah. Staggering. And, but, and that reflects the workforce too, because yeah. you mentioned Timnit Gabru, who's in Google Brain. She, when she was fired by Google, she represented, black women represented 1% of the people in that organization, 1%. Mm-hmm. So. And Wendance's book is really about the, the kind of racial, ethnic, yeah. um, gender, and sexual dynamics of employees within these companies. It's an ethnographic study. It's really interesting to read her book and then look at these shows in relation to the book. Um, yeah. To, yeah. I, well, I was saying before that I wish that these screenwriters and would, would, would read this kind of literature, right, to tell the kind of stories that, that you found in your, in your um, while doing your field research and conducting those interviews and talking to those people. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, I wish we had more stories like that and perhaps less of the, the white bro CEOs um, that, that are the celebrities of, of kind of our moment, as you said. Maybe it's a good moment to um, to open up to the audience if folks have questions. I just had a question about <clears throat> the periodization of and how you're arguing historically for when you saw this beginning 
and your end point seems 2019. So, you know, what does the pandemic do to the logic that you've just discussed? I mean, yeah, we, we, I mean, we wrote this a year ago. Um, I mean, I think uh, that, you know, we've seen the tech, the mass layoffs, and we've seen the collapse of a couple banks. And I think that is a product of the industry not being regulated. What I would like to add to that, though, is these companies aren't able to do these layoffs in Europe where they have more labor protections. Mm. So, for example, in Germany and France, they're not, they're the, these companies that are laying off the Americans, they're actually being forced to negotiate with unions there. So I think this, what's really sad and sort of embarrassing is we kind of need the EU. We're sort of depending on the EU to regulate these mm. companies because mm. <laughs> the, the, the U.S. government's not doing it. So when we, look, when we look at the future, we look at regulation or examples of places where there are labor protections and fewer scandals, it's in Europe, in mostly Western Europe. So I think that's interesting because you're not seeing the same... I mean, Swiss, Credit Suisse had some issues, but we're not saying, seeing the same problems in Europe that we're seeing here. And I think one issue is there's more regulation there. There are more labor protections. And so there is really a, 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 a gap in terms of, especially when we look at regulation. Yeah, I would just say that um, the question about the pandemic and um, its role in you know, a moment where the economy really collapsed. Uh, if you look at the charts, you really just see, like, you know, a, a dive down, and it's there's been a recovery. But as you've noticed, and as Wendance mentioned, tens of thousands of, of workers have been laid off within the tech sector, and they've been really trying to tighten their belts financially and streamline their operations and go through this kind of economic efficiency phase where they... Um, even reevaluating their own value. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, one of the things that we end the article with is we, we point out that both these CEOs were removed from their positions, ultimately. And then just a couple of years later, they were reappointed as CEOs as new, quote-unquote, disruptive ventures. Um, one's called Flow. That's Adam Newman in a kind of new international real estate venture. For housing. And then yeah. Kalanick was doing, I need to look up. I, I forget, but, but they both have started new startups. And in fact, Adam Newman was getting, like already had big investors. Uh, and their argument was, look at how well he did in disrupting the real estate industry. So now they're giving him money to finance his new venture, which is about housing. So they don't seem to have really suffered uh, from that. But in terms of the pandemic, I would also say, look at the profits. And one reason we're seeing these mass layoffs is the shareholders still want their money. They still want to have the same profit margins, right? So they've made a lot of money. They want to keep the profit margins up. And one, we don't really see the, the U.S. stepping up to regulate. And we're behind. So once again, we're looking to the EU. I thank you. That's just terrific. I want to know so much more from you all about your kind of comparative analysis of these two shows, you know, in, in basically celebrating tech broism, 
you know, at the same time, it's supposed to be having a critique of it, but it mm -hmm. has so much fun with it, for one thing. <laughs> and then the shows do try to have some kind of uh, analysis, you know, uh, in both cases of, you know, uh, women in the workplace. Uh, but I'm just wondering, uh, you know, kind of how you assess their success and failures at that. But I'm also thinking about what you uh, might think about, I mean, the earliest iteration of this that I know uh, is Silicon Valley, uh, you know, which uh, there, uh, you know, the, the show, Silicon right, Valley, right. Where, where they were basically the beavis and buttheads of tech bros. Right, you know. right. And <laughs> although it too had a kind of analysis, you know, uh, uh, women were marginally better than the tech bros, but then they ended all ended up being as complicit or worse uh, than the tech bros. But anyway, so I'm just kind of wondering about your overall analysis of, of uh, you know, just kind of how in-depth and meaningful the critique is, uh, because it's also just like, you know, you got this spectacular fun of just watching all the hedonism and, you know, and we won't call it toxic masculinity. Well, I, I think we see this as part, these two shows as part of a cycle of what might be called tech TV shows that, you know, Halt and Catch Fire, Silicon Valley, Mr. Robot, Startup, The Dropout, Severance, a whole bunch of shows have come out probably over the last decade that try to stage um, tech company operations. And I think we were interested in the, the kind of um, audacity of the, <laughs> these shows and, and, and just... Uh, they, they, they just stood out to us because they had just come out. and right. um, They came out during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Constance, I would, I would also say that when you think about Silicon Valley, so that came out in 2014. That was actually before any of these companies had released the demographics of their workplace. So it's not until 2014 that the San Jose Mercury News files a Freedom of Information Act to force these companies to reveal the demographics of, a, of their workplace. And that's when we find out that it's like 2% black and, you know, 4% Latinx and, you know, X percent is Asian. And they also, they don't really break up Asian versus Asian American. But we didn't have any data because prior to that Freedom of Information Act, the government colluded with tech companies to make the argument that, that that information about their workforce was a trade secret and they could be hurt, the economy could be hurt if it were released. So by focusing on these two shows, these two shows came out after all the scandals, yeah. right? Yeah. Because the scandals started in 2016. So there were so a series of scandals and class action lawsuits, and then we did have the New York Times reporters. And so I think what makes what separates this from 2014 is it's not funny now, and that was a comedy. You know how I'm not into comedies, Connie. <laughs> but like, it's not really funny now because we've had all the lawsuits, we've had all the discrimination suits, we we've had you know we've seen the negative consequences. So that was a different moment. Mm. And I think things shifted kind of beginning roughly in 2017, because by 2017, we're starting to see, oh, this is worse than we thought. And women are, st and, and also 
by 2017, Ellen Powell has lost her lawsuit. And, you know, we're starting to see women, white and Asian American women, come out and say, yeah, I drank the Kool-Aid. I didn't know it was so bad. I didn't realize after 10 years and not working with a single Latinx or black person, I didn't think there was a problem. And that starts to fall apart when we get to 2016 and we start getting the memoirs and the legal cases. Does that make sense? So and, I think and when it, Trump, be, Trump becomes president. And then Trump becomes right. president. So I think Silicon Valley was a different moment. It was an earlier moment. It also just normalizes this kind of post-regulatory paradigm where you can expose sexism and sexual assault and racism and exploitation and then just ignore it. You know, like it, right. it's really problematic how that gets kind of rationalized by these shows. You know, it, bring yeah. it all up yeah. and then reward the guy after you fire him by giving him $12 billion to do the th- same thing over again. Um, yeah. The pattern the, and the paths through which these people move through capital uh, is, is crazy. <laughs> and, you, and it's really, shock, it's really shocking if you, if you read the literature that sociologists produce, people who study inequality in organizations in the 70s and 80s, and we're seeing continuities across five decades in terms of the gender inequality, the gender discrimination. Like, that's what's so shocking is these are the millennials. They're supposed to be better than the boomers, right? And it's just... As you said, like not, and we have we have more data now, and nothing's really changed, and they're still getting financing. I think I think that's that's it. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you to our esteemed panelists. Have a good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV. Visit us online at uctv.tv.